Uh, cause us to grow and move by your Holy Spirit. Let the word pierce our hearts and touch us. Um, change us in the ways that you want. Inspire us in the ways you want. Uh, encourage us when we need it. But above all, Father, touch us by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. I am sensing, just so you know, I am sensing that there is something God is doing with us as a church, as a people, not us alone, but many, many who are seeking God. I think there's something fresh and new in the air that is going to change the way we do business as a church. I think the prophetic word that, you know, even that the Lord gave me and we heard testimonies along those lines, there is something that has to change if we're going to get the harvest. We've got to go into the fields. The fields are wide in the harvest. Jesus says so. They have been so for centuries. We have 1.5 billion Chinese on the earth right now. We need missionaries, and we need a move of God in China. And if you've ever, if you've ever read it, there's a book called The Heavenly Man. If you get a chance to read it, it's about a Chinese uh, house church leader. And, it, it, and when you're done with it, you feel like you have, you're not even a Christian. Just thou how it is, but it's very, very powerful. What I am, this sermon is titled Tensions of Grace, <clears throat> and what we'd li- I'd like to explore some things with us together. There are some extreme tensions in this walk with God. When we're walking with God, we live in some divine tensions. One of them is that we're here on this earth, and yet we have one foot in heaven. We, ha- we hear the voice of the world, but we have the opportunity to hear the voice of God. And the world wants to tell you that you're strange and insane and everything and you hear the voice of God. The real truth is they're deaf and they can't hear. And they're the ones who are living in sanity, not us, because it is intended that we would be able to walk with our God and hear his voice. And so when you buy into, oh my gosh, I'm going crazy or something if I hear the voice of God, no, they're crazy because they cannot hear the voice of God. On the one hand, I have a God, and we use even in the prophetic word today, was God is calling us to holiness. On the one hand, I have a God who is perfect, he's pure, he's always right, even when I argue with him. He can be angry, as we can see from the book of Revelation and other places in the Old Testament, and he is reserving this world for a judgment of fire. So we know that there's some intense things. But also, <clears throat> I have this God who loves me so much and loves us so much that he gave his own, his own son for us. And so I'm really confused. <laughs> yes, I find myself in confusion at times because of this. Because here's what happens. We seek to express the love of God as we do so. We attempt to express the law of God. So on one hand, I'm talking about grace and love. And then on another hand, I got these messages of judgment and, um, and the law of God, and it's where do we really live with all this? Because then sometimes we want to show grace, and in some situations we want to judge. In some ways we feel we need to be really open and kind, and sometimes we feel like we need to judge things because we cannot be run over by this kind of stuff. Anybody identify with those feelings other than me? But the easy thing, you know, it's always, it's easy always to go to one extreme or the other. It's, it would be, it's real easy if you just make a lot of laws and people don't obey the laws, you just kick them out. Right? That would be really easy. And we have some church organizations and some organizations that just live all like this. Here's the law. It's black. 
And if you do white, you're dead. If you don't obey the community, if you don't follow the rules, if you don't, you know, jot your I's and cross your T's exactly the way we say, then you cannot live in this community and you're gone. And that's harsh. The other extreme we could go to is, is the grace of God is so big, no one will ever be lost. And then you get, you swim in the mire of universalism and you have confusion and you have chaos and anarchy. This is something God does to us all the time. Why does he do that? Puts us in a place where it's never comfortable to just sit down. You know, you can just, it would be so easy to just sit on the side of law and say, this is it. In or out. Cross the line, you're dead. Just live that way. It's really easy. You can judge people and you can feel so self-righteous. You know, you can feel so good. And you can wear an era, an era of arrogance and purity and perfection. You know, and, and then you can live on the inner side where you're just so easygoing, grace, God loves everybody, God is love, there's no hell, there's no this, there's no that. He's going to take everybody in, so eat, drink, and be merry. And it'd be easy to be that too. We have people live in both places, but then those of us who try to live in Scripture live in this tension. We live in this, this uncomfortable place. I think that's God's plan, just make us uncomfortable. what someone has defined the ministry as comfort the hurting and hurt the comforted. (laughs) Sometimes it feels that way. So as we, in some ways we feel we need to be open. Sometimes we feel the need to judge, but what am I do? This I have concluded. Here's what I've concluded. We've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. We are entirely short and fall short of any rewards-based goodness. All my good deeds don't add up to anything that equals salvation. I've come to this conclusion. Humans share the corruptness of a flawed spiritual DNA that has been passed to us through the human Adamic condition. What's that? Sure. We as humans share the corruptness of a flawed spiritual DNA passed to us through the the human Adamic condition. And here's what I conclude. I conclude as David did in the in the Psalms. In Psalm nineteen, verse seven through eleven. Are we gonna have those up there? You can put scriptures up. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. 
We used to sing that. But there's everything that you see here is it's perfect, it's clean, it's pure. Everything about God is godness. It's perfection. Perfection personified. And we realize and we see in this perfection every time that we put ourselves up against God, it's, it's, it's damning. Anybody that has an air of self-righteousness you need to turn the light on. Because you'll see how corrupt you really are. I, I went to God years ago and asked this question, how can you even look at us? And he says, I look at you through the blood of my son. That's how I see you. And Lord, how can I look at you? He says, you look at me through the blood of my son too. So that when I look through the blood of Jesus, I can behold God and enter into his holy of holies. And God looks through his son and he sees perfection as he is. For our sins have been washed away. But (laughs) on this side of the blood, I know I'm still messing up. Anybody with me? I'm still messing up. I'm not living every day perfect. I don't know if I live any day perfect. But I do have this assurance that in Jesus Christ, I am being made like him from glory to glory. So I have concluded this, that knowing God, following God, obeying God is extremely important. Anybody with me on that? It's important. Now, I may falter, I may fail, I may stumble, but it's still important. And it's, it's always the idea, I got to get up again. I can't lay here and wallow in my sin. I got to get up. But legalism and, and this law side and this self-righteousness says, don't you dare get up, you sinner. How dare you be in church? How dare you even assume that you have any relationship with God? If it weren't for the Gospels, if it weren't for Jesus coming, we would be, as most of the Old Testament folks were, that were not Pharisees or Sadducees or that crowd, we would have been discouraged, outcasts, the pariah. You see... He says, the pursuit of all this is Psalm 23, where it says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where I'm going. If I'm too judgmental, I make the bar so high that none can make it. How many of you have ever felt? I mean, when I'm, here's, I've already this, I've talked to people and say, you know, you need to come to Jesus. It's just, you can receive the Lord. Oh, I'm not good enough. How many of you have ever heard that when you're talking to somebody? I'm not good enough. I'm not ready. I've got to clean some things up before I can come. Well, let me tell you something. You'll never get them clean enough to get there. Because your house is a mess. So what, I've, what I see then is that if I'm too judgmental, I make the bar so high that none can make it. I am really a Pharisee who makes the converts and then kills them. 
As it says in, in Matthew 23, verse 15, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I, I really enjoyed, how many of you ever watched the Peanuts cartoon or seen the Peanuts cartoon? I mean, I used to draw posters for the youth of Peanuts and everything, but in one of the books it said that there was Charles Schultz, who was a Christian, had drawn a cartoon, and it shows, I think it was Linus, standing in church, looking around, and he says, where's all the hypocrites? Because <laughs> he told, was told the church was full of hypocrites. Hypocrites are play actors. They were in the Greek tragedies and things. They were the ones who would put masks up in front of them and play different characters because the, the characters would actually play several different people, and by changing the mask they held up in front of them, they became different characters. So Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. I conclude then that if you're a judgmental in a legal system, it'd be just leave the world alone. Don't bring him to your, to your situation and to your legalism because you will end up making twice the child of hell that they started out to that they are right now. That's not the message is needed. Oh, I can remember it's, I can remember when we were seeking the Lord, we went to a Wesleyan Holiness Church. And lots of the holiness churches interpret holiness by what you wear, particularly the women. You have to have long dresses, you have to have, you know, your head covered, you have to, you know, there's all kinds of different things that are done. You don't dress modern. You don't wear makeup. You have to have your hair in a bun. I don't know what the deal is. But Kathy and I went in, and she had, how many, oh, I saw them today. A lot of you have the boots, and they're on right up here. The ladies have the boots on up there. And she had a dress, there, pants come. And she had a dress that came to her knee top. You know, nothing wrong. But the preacher saw her. And she didn't fit the mold of what was there. And he spent his whole sermon deriding women and their dress. And he did it vehemently and jumped up and down the pulpit and spun around a couple times. He was quite theatric. But Kathy just sat there and laughed through the whole sermon. There was nothing redemptive about that message at all. Now, I believe in modesty. I believe that we need to be modest. But the fact is, if you enter into that kind of system, you end up being worse off than you were before you got there. Now, any of you ladies that wear your hair in a bun, please take no offense at that. You're not wearing it that way because you're required to in this church, okay? You see... <clears throat> Then, I get, then there is this other side, which is called, I just titled it, the Grace Express. But neither can I become one who thinks that God has no requirements. I cannot throw the door open any wider than God does, because he says like this in Matthew 7, there's verse 13, 14. Enter through the narrow gate. And most of the grace messages, it's a six-lane freeway. And all you got to do is just jump on. I can tell you where that freeway goes. Because the Bible says broad is the way that leads to destruction. 
But he's saying here that it, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now the question becomes, for me, how narrow is narrow? Well, we have to take all that in the context of all the other scripture because there is, there is this divine tension. There is this wonderful grace that is ours, but there's also this call to holiness that goes on constantly in scripture. And let me declare this, that holiness does not start with outward forms. The scripture wants it to start in the heart. Grace is not license to sin. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? The idea was, if I sin more, I get more grace. Paul says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? In other words, if you died to sin, how can you continue to live in sin? And everybody here has to admit, but I sin. But the idea is you don't live in it. And I can guarantee you, if you're born again and you commit a sin, you're convicted right now. Anybody here with me on that? Immediately. Boy, did I mess up. But praise God for Jesus, our hero. In... Um, let me get the scripture reference here. In, in John 8, verses 1 through 11, Jesus is our hero. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees, here they come. Here they come. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought this out. But they knew that some man was having an affair with some woman and they knew that they were in the bedroom and the, the Pharisees charged into the bedroom, ripped the guy away from the woman and dragged her away. You know, sometimes we just look at it and, oh, they got it, there's a woman in adultery. You got to look behind the scene. This is, pure, this is pretty tawdry. This is pretty gross. In trying to be, to catch Jesus with the law, they actually walk into someone's bedroom and tear the guy away from the woman, grab the woman. I don't know why they didn't grab the guy too. He's just as guilty as she is. He just must have been able to run faster. I don't know. But regardless, they got the woman, and here's Jesus teaching in the temple, and they come dragging this woman, probably half-dressed. They didn't grab her and say, get dressed, honey, we're going to take you down to the temple. They wanted to make sure that she just as looked as whorish as she could and drag her in there and throw her in front of Jesus in the temple 
Can you imagine the embarrassment of this woman, the, how little she felt, how horrible she must have felt? Probably just wanted to die right there. And having set her in the center of the court, she's not running, she's not moving, she's so hum- humiliated, she probably just wants to melt into the stone and die. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. In the very act. So we know it wasn't hearsay. They were there. Now here begins the pontification. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? So if they're really so wanting to fulfill the law, why didn't they just do it right there in the bedroom? They really wanted to make a case against Jesus. And they were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. Now I want you to see, here's Jesus in the, the very tension that I'm talking about. This is the very tension that we live in. And if we didn't have the Gospels, I wouldn't have any clue how to live it out. But Jesus keeps doing it and gives us an example. So he doesn't say anything. Sometimes people, the best defense is keeping your mouth shut. Christians are way too quick to try to give an answer. Keep your mouth shut. You're wasting good pearls. They were saying, testing him so they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And the first time I heard a sermon on this, it was one of my professors, and he so eloquently stated, Jesus began to write in the sand through the word of knowledge every sin of those standing around. And when you look down and your, your sin is being named, and maybe he even drew an arrow towards you <laughs> in the sand. <laughs> and with his finger wrote on the ground, but they were, persisted in asking, and he straightened up and said to them, he was without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So he didn't deny the law, but they put the burden on the proof on the perfect one. And the only perfect one was the one who said it. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Meaning, if there's anybody who's clean here, go ahead and do it. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one I love this, beginning with the older ones. You see, there's something about youth that is sometimes brash and passionate and all they need is some support from somebody older like Saul holding the coats and they're ready to go at it. But somehow, whatever Jesus was writing convicted the ones who were older who had the authority And they began to walk away, and the young ones are left with no authority to do anything. And when he was left alone, so there he is in the courtyard, all the accusers are gone, and here's the woman still in the the depths of deprivation and humiliation. 
And it's just her and Jesus, and I, I has to be some observers because there's people at the temple. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Note that we have this perfect balance of the tension. The law is not denied and grace is extended. It's amazing. I pray that we get so smart, so discerning. How many of you ever uh, read the Ragamuffin Gospel? I recommend it to everyone. Brendan Manning is the author. Um, he's an acquaintance or a friend of ours. He's spoken in our church in Weensburg. I've been to several of his meetings, had dinner with him. Very fine man. At the time, he was a Franciscan priest. Today, he is married with children. Sometimes you get to the place you can't continue on in some of the things. But here I wanted to share this with you because it really, it really begins to speak to where I feel we are. And I just want to quote because I cannot write as good as he does. But here's what it says. <clears throat> and this is where we're going. Where we're going, it's not for muscular Christians who have made John Wayne and not Jesus their hero. What we're going to do is not for academics who would imprison Jesus in an ivory tower of exegesis. Boy, I can feel annoying on this. It is not for noisy, feel-good folks who manipulate Christianity into a naked appeal to emotion. What we're going to do here is going to be genuine or it's not going to happen. I don't want any stupid stuff. Like I said, I want a spirit of unity with peace, unity, and no goofiness. Where we're going is not for hooded mystics who want magic in their religion. It's not for hallelujah Christians who live only on the mountaintop and have never visited the valley of desolation. Where we're going is not for the fearless and the tearless. This is not for red-hot zealots who boasts with the rich young ruler of the Gospels, all these commandments I have kept from my youth. Where we're going is not for the complacent who hoist over their shoulders a tote bag of honors, diplomas, and good works, actually believing they have made it. We're going to be a crowd of pilgrims helping each other down the road. That's what we're going to be. It's not for legalists who would rather surrender control of their souls to rules than run the risk of living in union with Jesus. But here's what we want. What we're looking for, what we want to accomplish is for the sorely burdened who are still shifting the heavy suitcase from one hand to the other. We're looking for the bedraggled, the beat up, and the burnout. We're looking for the wobbly and weak-kneed who know they don't have it all together and are too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. We're looking for the inconsistent, the unsteady disciples whose cheese is falling off their cracker. 
I bet we have some unsteady disciples here. I know we do. I pastor you. (laughs) (laughs) What we're going for is we're looking for the poor, the weak, the sinful men and women with a hereditary of faults and limited talents. We're going to minister to people that are earthen vessels who shuffle along on feet of clay. We're looking for the bent and the bruised to feel that their lives are a grave disappointment to God. And we're looking for smart people who know they are stupid. And honest disciples who admit they are scallywags. That's what we're looking for. That's the kind of people we are. That's the kind of people I am. I don't declare perfection at all. <clears throat> I am convinced we are all broken vessels. Done enough counseling, listened to enough stories. But the ones who think they're not broken are arrogant and deceived. We are trying our best at times and doing the worst at times. We fly high and we fail miserably. We can attain greatness and then we can be absolutely despicable. At best, at best, we contain our urges and our frailties. We continue to pursue righteousness, but we know that temptation is ever nipping at our heels. A Catholic author that I read one time um, by the name of Henry Nguyen wrote, wrote some really good stuff, was a college professor, was a, a man of renown, extremely educated, could hold large crowds in the palm of his hand as he spoke. And the Lord told him to lay all that down and go work in a home for the mentally ill. And he walked into the home, and his degrees meant nothing. His vocabulary meant nothing because they couldn't understand. And he was assigned two patients that he had to care for. And their interest in his relationship was helping them clean up in the morning, get them to breakfast, and make sure that they could live the day. And all that education meant nothing in that. He has since passed away, and for all his renown and his fame and his pursuit of God, he made the comment toward the end of his life to one of his friends. He says, I have struggled with the, the urges of homosexuality all my life and have never given in to them. See, some of us all fight stuff. We may never do it on the exterior. We may never ever give in to it. But I know this, that the devil is constantly nipping at your heels about something. And so there's really no room to stand and talk about how righteous or how great an overcomer you are. Really, overcoming is a moment-to-moment battle. And without the grace of God, we would fail. 
And even with the grace of God, we fail sometimes. Some have ordered their lives and through discipline soldier on. I mean, some are more organized than others. Others are overcome by their weaknesses and stumble headlong in difficulty. At points of failure is where the family of God is tested severely. Because we have people in our midst who will fail, have failed, and there is no guarantee, there is a guarantee they will fail in the future. I know they will. I look to Jesus. The Gospels are the greatest challenge in my life. They challenge me beyond my limits. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Pray for people. I mean, it's... I don't like it. Turn the other cheek. I want to give him a knuckle sandwich. Whereas one old preacher said, he turned the cheek, and he turned the other cheek, and then he told the guy, I fulfilled scripture and nailed him. (laughs) 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 But that's, that's where we are, isn't it? Jesus, you like you make life difficult because just when you want to do something, it was my, it was and Kathy again in a situation. You know, our son came in the house from school and there was this bully, Michael Parr. Then he comes storming the house and he says, "I'm going to go beat that Michael Parr up." And he was storming over to the stairs to go up and change clothes. It's something he could beat somebody up in. And Kathy says to Bill, says, that's fine. That you're, you're allowed to go do that. But first of all, you ask Jesus as if it's okay. His response was, oh, mom, you make me so mad. <laughs> but out of the wisdom of mother, sometimes uh, Jesus can speak, huh? See, the Gospels are a challenge. They challenge me to my limits. They go beyond. The Old Testament is easier some way. Wrong is punished. Earth opens. They're gone. Fire comes down from heaven. They're gone. <laughs> it was, it's filled with stonings and executions. Wrath from heaven. All lends to law and order. But Jesus brings this new, really new dimension to things. He is interested in the individual. And when law is exercised, he seems to temper it with a, with a look into the heart of the person. We soon learn that not every prostitute is in the business because she likes it. Many are slaves in a human trafficking, trafficking system of evil. Some, as the Russian author Dostoevsky wrote, they're entrapped in the only way to survive and provide for the family. Rahab, in the Old Testament, obviously was trapped caring for her family when the Israeli spies came to Jericho. And God was not the least put off by her. He puts her in the lineage of Jesus. I think he did that on purpose. One of the other things I observed, people know their condition. People know who they are. They know they have failed, they've made huge mistakes, and are living with the consequences of it. 
All of us sitting here are living with the consequences of decisions that we've made, some good, some bad, some desperate. And some of them are so lost that they live with the constant thought of suicide to kill the pain. There are some who just want to die to end the pain. They don't understand the consequence beyond that. Existence becomes survival only. It is, it's a day-to-day trudge through life with the eyes set on, on a hopeless grave. There are too many people out in the world right now that get up in the morning, live through the day, go to bed, and hate to get up in the morning. Some even say, I hope I die in my sleep. I don't want to face another day. To those people, we are called. That is the field that's wide under harvest. Those are the people that are desperate. Those are the ones who need a saving word. The times are real. We live in a world more like the first century than ever before. Christians are facing a pluralistic mire of competing religions and gods. We are not the only voice hawking our wares on the corner. We are no longer what we call a Christian nation. The reality is that we need to wake up and admit it. And it has been a post-Christian nation for decades now. To think that we live in a Christian nation, you've got to come out of your dream world and face the reality. This in no way minimizes Jesus or the gospel. It makes us go back to the real gospel with power. <clears throat> For me, the Christian religion is non-sustainable without the power of God in this culture. Either we, either we begin start living like Christians and expecting God to move or we're off the face of the earth. Those people that are, have, who have a form of godliness and deny the power thereof, those groups of people are dying exponentially in large death sections every year by 20-30%. Ralph, who was here last week, stated that he was an Anglican priest, and in Canada there were like 54 uh, Anglican churches in his city there are, or in their region they're now down to 22, and they don't have enough priests to care for it. The other thing that was interesting <clears throat> is that the Asian bishops and the African bishops refused to go to a conference if any bishop from North America was invited because they will not put up with homosexuals in the ministry. And they boycotted the conference, and therefore... When it came down to it, no bishop from North America was invited to the conference. Something's going on. It takes us away from the, you see, we must get back to the real gospel with power. It takes away from the formalities of acceptability and places us in the trenches of the real war that's going on between light and darkness. We can no longer pretend or play church. Either you're in or you're out. And I'm going to guarantee you that we're going to go forward with the gospel here and if you're a pretender, you probably won't be able to stay. Because we're going to see the power of God move. You're going to see in here people praying in tongues. You're going to see prophets come forth. You're going to see pageantry. And you're going to hear shofars. We're definitely getting our marching orders. It's kind of like 
you can't run with the big dogs, go home. But in, a, in Christianity, it's either get real or go home. I would consider the current condition as one orchestrated by God to bring his church to reality and revival. While everybody's crying and saying it's dying, it's dying, I, the Lord is crying, it needs buried, it needs buried. Because he's bringing true life and real, the reality to us. You see, what we are attempting is nothing less than a remnant movement. I believe we are a remnant. Hear me, we are a remnant. It's, it's the word that God spoke to Elijah. There are 3,000 who have not bowed the knee. And I believe that we're part of a remnant movement that is going to gain traction. And that's why I'm saying, I'm sensing that we are on to something new that God is doing. And that out of the ashes that we have seen, we're going to rise with power. And I believe the burning was God's job. I think he did it. I think he's still doing it. And I think he'll do it until he brings forth what he wants. Now, <clears throat> my comment has been this, that one of the greatest miracles of all history is the survivability of the church of Jesus Christ. And if there's any testimony to the existence of God is the fact that the church still exists. But I have watched through, and if you study church history, you know this, that whenever it comes to this legalistic drunkenness, you know, this heresy that goes on, always God moves and burns down those, those temples and raises up his own people again. See then, what we're attempting is nothing less than a remnant movement. If we can identify where we are, then I say let's embrace it, let's live it, and let's wear it. And when we begin to wear it, we can wear it and take the stigmata that goes with it, the accusation, but I can, if you're convinced and you're confident that you're in the hand of God and in the will of God, you can wear it with grace. We must not give in to legalistic forms, neither can we swim in cheap grace. Loving the sinner and not the sin is a bigger challenge than you can imagine. Loving the self-righteous is even more difficult. I put that in there because I really meant that. But with God, all things are possible. I don't have all the answers. I don't think I'll ever have all the answers. Right now in my life, I probably have more questions than I have answers. I had a lot more answers when I was 25. <laughs> but I do know this. I do know this. Loving people and providing an avenue of grace is more like Christ than anything else. Let me repeat that. I do know this. The loving people and providing an avenue of grace is more like Jesus Christ than anything else. We read the words, Neither do I condemn thee, but go and sin no more. Truly a wonderful admonition and expression of grace. But how many of you know you heard those words at various times and were forgiven only to falter again and again? Anybody in the boat with me? Thank you. I didn't want to be alone there. The wonderful thing about Jesus, though, is that we have this provision for this narrow road. He knows it's, it's narrow, but he's made a provision for us that there is continued forgiveness, and that was a good, that's good news. Because when I was 10 years old and I was baptized in water, I came out of there and I thought, wow, I, this feels so good, I'm so clean, I don't want to ever sin again in my rest of my life. 
only to a few days later disobey my mother or something like that, and I was done. <laughs> but you know something? God has made provision every year, every day that there's forgiveness. The wonderful thing is that there's a provision for this narrow road. There's continued forgiveness through repentance. I have found this walk to be one of constant maintenance. Anybody with me on that? It's constant maintenance. It takes work. That whole idea, you know, the yoke is easy, the burden is light. But it, it, it takes staying in step with the guy that's in the, uh, the yoke with you and Jesus is moving on. And the forgiveness is there. Those of you who remember Paul Smith, dear brother and father in the Lord, he told me a story. He said he had, he had a farm around here. <clears throat> okay, the voice is about God. And you said it's going to hold up. I thought it would, but it's just about God. He told this story. He said, when, when we were plowing the fields with teams of horses, he said, I had this one horse that whenever we needed to teach a new one, I always put him in the harness with that horse. Because he said, that horse was, did better training than any, anybody that I, you know, that I could train. I put him in there, and if the young horse lunged, he says, the old horse bit it. And if the young horse wasn't carrying its weight, he bit it. <laughs> he said, by the end of the day, that young horse is just working right alongside. <laughs> I think that's the way it is with Jesus. You get this yoke with Jesus and you slow down, he bites you, you know, you get too ahead, he bites you. And all the time there's forgiveness. And pretty soon you start to learn how to walk. I don't know about you, but there's times that well, I don't want to go there again. So I found this walk to be a, one of constant maintenance. So I live with the admission, admonition, follow me, hear my voice. If you love my commandments, in my Father's house are many mansions. It keeps stirring me forward. It keeps moving me forward. The enemy's always wanting to take your failures and use them against you and make you give up and walk away. But Jesus says there's forgiveness. Ask, you receive. Come, follow me, hear my voice. And some of the greatest, one of the greatest stories of that is the restitution of Peter after his denial. Jesus won't give up on him. Do you love me? And Jesus, and Peter just kind of gives a half-hearted answer Gosh, he just keeps after him until he gets to the heart. Jesus does that for us. So where we're going is not easy. But it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. But Lord, help us. Okay? Let's all stand together. It's interesting that when God sends his son, he doesn't go to the palace, he goes to a carpenter's home. Right? 
Sometimes it's just those of us who have enough failure in our lives to kind of surrender to the King and just move on. So, Father, we thank you for today. We just ask you to continue to bless and encourage our hearts that we can live with the tensions of grace and we can be a graceful people, that we can be a people that will reach out and love and, and know that we are all pilgrims together in this pursuit walking towards glory and that there are rewards that are worthy of our efforts and our submission and rewards that are worthy of us in the midst of our mistakes, looking up, getting up, and walking again. So, Father, I pray that you just bless each one with an encouraged heart today and minister to them, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like just to give just one closing invitation, and when we do so, you'll be free to go. I never like to hold people while we're praying for others, but if you have that sense of desperation and kind of seriously discouraged, I would, I would like you to come forward for prayer and just allow us to pray with you because you are loved and there is an answer, okay? So if you want prayer, come this way. And if you need to leave, you're free to go and spend your next 45 minutes visiting with one another. So God bless you.